Welcome into the Wednesday Bible study. We are thankful that you have taken time to join us. If, if you're uh, watching this live, thank you for making this uh, part of your day. Uh, if you're listening to or watching an archive, we, we welcome you as well. Uh, this is actually being done live on uh, February the 15th. Uh, so uh, kind of make that adjustment on where you are if you're doing this on, on archives. So want to let you know some things that are going on. This is uh, the Wednesday Bible study. It is part of a greater discipleship strategy, which uh, was uh, created and worked on uh, in, uh, in my local church, and then we sent it out to the, to the nation uh, in March of 2020. Uh, and uh, so we're now in 2023. So we're approaching, uh, you know, the th- three-year anniversary of that launch. Uh, and and the design is for there to be gatherings of men in services and at uh, events. And then that's where the high challenge takes place. And men's ministry has been doing that for for quite a while, uh, especially at the conference level. Uh, and then uh, the part that has been added that has been talked about for many many years. Uh, but rarely ever implemented, and that is that you got to you can't just have high challenge without high equipping because then that just leads to frustration. So what we're doing is we're as committed to the equipping as we are to the challenge. Uh, so that way uh, it actually works. And and what we're seeing around the country that God has done, and this strategy is right out of His Word. We didn't come up with it. Uh, it's just implementing it. And uh, and so uh, if you'd like to find out more, you can go to themanchurch.com. We got a cool landing video that we just put up today uh, that kind of tells you who we are and and uh, how we felt called to this, and we can help you. Um, there's probably 784, 85 churches that are doing our strategy in some way, shape, or form, if not completely, uh, all over the country and even around the world. Uh, so uh, we're excited that you have joined us today. And uh, there's men in the room. This is us in a small group format. Uh, we're studying the book of, uh, of Revelation right now. Uh, and we do that, but also at themanchurch.com, we offer curriculum. We have, we'll have a fourth one coming out um, uh, this year. Uh, and uh, and you can get those curriculum and implement them yourself. It's uh, it's 40 weeks out of the year that your men will be in small groups, and, and that's the equipping part. So we, we have whatever you would like. Uh, we even offer teachers to come to your church for man church services, and we have a conference coming up uh, next week in Oxford, Alabama, our first conference. We've been associated with other conferences, but uh, this is the first time that we've done one ourselves. It is sold out. But we're excited about all of you that are coming. From us looking at the tickets, it looks like there'll be about 120, 125 different churches represented from all over the country uh, and even around the world. Uh, so it looks like they all average about 10 tickets apiece because it's a, about a 1,200-seat theater. And we have an incredible weekend planned for all of you coming up uh, next weekend, and we can't wait. Uh, we do have members of our class here that might be outside scalping tickets, so be leery of that. Uh, but anyway, no, we're excited about that. And, that, and I wanna, want you to make a note of it. If you miss this year's conference, and, and the conference is not the traditional conference. It's really more like a summit or a convention, meaning most of the people coming are, are already doing the strategy, and they're coming to hear some of our teachers at all in one weekend and then find out what are the latest resources that, that we have developed. Uh, so it's, it's a little different than the traditional conference. But it's gone so well, we're, we're targeting two markets for next year uh, that we will now go from one conference to two. And it looks like those markets will be Birmingham, Alabama in 2024 and Starkville, Mississippi. Uh, so 
make a note of that. One will be in February, one will be in March, and uh, we'll give you more details at the conference, but also uh, as uh, we solidify some of the details. But make a note of that. The 2024 will now have two of those dates. Uh, find out everything, like I said, at themanchurch.com. So I mentioned services. Uh, the services, that's within the local church. These are services designed for men. A lot of churches do one a quarter. So here's some churches that are already doing our strategy or kicking it off this month. Uh, so you can go tomorrow night, the 16th of February, Huntsville, Alabama, Hopetown Church. This church is only 10 months old, and one of our team members, Pastor Tim Ashley, planted this church. And now Blake Prime from our team, one of our teachers, is going up to kick off the strategy there tomorrow night for Man Church, and you can join them for that. On the 17th, got a couple of opportunities. We do have a conference uh, that uh, that First Baptist uh, Chipley in Chipley, Florida, is doing. Now, when I say conference, it's just a one-day deal, but we're sending two of our teachers there, uh, Rich Wingo and Scott Dawson. So you can be there for that. It's called Prove Yourself a Man. This is their own uh, event, but they've invited two of our teachers to be there. Uh, So you can be there with them this Friday night in Chipley, Florida. On the 17th, this is just a a man church that's kicking off the strategy near Selma, Alabama. Uh, It's actually, to be specific, Valley Grand, Alabama. It's No Limit Church, and Andrew Varvudis from our team will be kicking off the strategy there. Then the next weekend, I told you, is the conference that is sold out in Oxford. And then on the 26th, uh, Blake Prime, again, will be at Crossroads Church in Warrior. They've been doing the strategy for a while, uh, and you can be with him. We do have a, a Man Church one day coming up. This is uh, the Man Church Arkansas, coming up to Pottsville, Arkansas. On March the 3rd, uh, 3rd Andy Blanks and I will be at First Baptist Church in Pottsville. It, it's, it's close to Russellville, that area. And, uh, guys, if you want to join us, it's free. There's no ticket to, to have for that. There's even a free dinner for that. It's it's them getting more men plugged into the strategy, and Andy and I are excited about going there. On that same day, a church that's been added a while in Op, Alabama, on March third, West Westview Baptist Church will also have their next man church, and Brian Gunn will be there. And at all these man churches, you have a chance to plug into one of the small groups as well. So let's open up in a word of prayer, and we will continue uh, our study uh, of the Revelation. We are going to start chapter three today. This will be the uh, the letter from Jesus to the church in Sardis. Lord, thank you for today. I pray, Lord, that our hearts are prepared to hear what you have to say in this extremely important message uh, that not only applies to the church, but also applies to us as individuals within the church. Uh, May we hear, as you have said, he who has an ear, let him hear uh, what you have to say. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's talk about Sardis. Uh, Sardis is, uh, is... it's going to be the next letter of the seven uh, churches that all receive letters from Jesus. Um, this one, if you're looking at the practical view, uh, remember there's three views uh, on these seven letters, and, and we're not really landing on either any of them. You can say it's a combination of all of them, or, or you can have your own personal conviction, but uh, there's things about this that are true no matter how you see this. But here's the practical view. This is a church uh, in, in time, which that is true. There's no doubt this church existed, and we'll tell you more about that. The practical view is this is Jesus talking to a fruitless dead church, okay? And, and it's that church at that time, and that's all it really applies to. Uh, then there's the state of any church at any time, and what you would see here is still that dead church, but you would also see liberalism. Uh, you, you would see um, uh, formality uh, versus devotion to Christ are, are, are the power of God. What you would see is a, there would be a form of godliness, but no power. 
Uh, so, so that would be what that would be, and that could apply to any church at any time. Then you've got the prophet. Uh, if you're looking in prophecy, the prophetic view would be here's the Reformation. This is now the uh, during the time of the rise of the Protestant Church. Uh, this is this is during the time of Reformation, and some of the churches adjusting to, as we've said many times. Uh, I think what you have to be careful of if you have this view. This is true no matter if you have this view or not. This is absolutely true. The church needed a Reformation. No question about that. We celebrate. Not all of you do. I see your comments at the bottom of the YouTube channel. Wish you'd just email me directly. Um, but anyway, that's not the format to go back and debate. Uh, but anyway, um, if, if you are anti the Reformation, this doesn't apply to you. If you're pro-Reformation uh, and thought that was something that was absolutely needed, uh, one thing we had to be careful of, and still careful today, it was wonderful that there was a desire to, to remove legalism and a works-based faith from the church. That's good. But what we have to be very careful of, when we have all this fervor to rightfully remove legalism, be sure you don't remove obedience. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we escort that right out, and we call obedience legalism, and it's not the same thing. Uh, so that's uh, Jesus is going to be addressing that today with the church at Sardis. Um, there, there's, there's really one of the looking at some of the commentary. This was a John MacArthur talked about this. He he said it's almost like you know a lot of times you look up and you see a star. And if I won't get deep on this, this is where we need my radio partner Bubba in here. But but I do know this. You know, many times you can still see a star that's already dead. But 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 it's got a glow. But what you don't know is what you're seeing isn't what it is anymore. That star has died but you still see the glow of it. This, this is what's going on in this church. It appears to be alive, but it's dead, uh, and, and that's going to be uh, addressed here. Um, and, and, it, and also, if you're familiar, when Jesus, in uh, Matthew's account, his gospel, it's in chapter 21, and it's in verse 19. And, and there is this very, very interesting thing that happens Jesus comes upon a fig tree and he wants it to have figs. You, do y'all know? Y'all remember this historic moment? And and the disciples are watching this uh, when they were the disciples before they were the apostles, and they're watching this, and they see that he walks up and the tree had leaves on it, but no fruit, and he cursed the fig tree. And what he was saying is, you had the appearance if a fig tree during that time had green leaves, it should have fruit. And he walks up and makes the analogy. See, it's sitting here with leaves on it. And, and so I'll walk up expecting fruit because I see the leaves, and I get here and there's no fruit. And he cursed the fig tree. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's a great uh, foundation to what this letter is going to be saying to, to the church at Sardis. Um, it, 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 the, the church, uh, like, uh, like others that we're seeing, this church did exist during the days of John still being alive and receiving the revelation. It was existing at the time. It was in John's day. Uh, but it was dominated uh, by, again, here's these, these problems that you have, um, unrepentant sin, uh, false doctrine, uh, rituals that now were just that, rituals. They didn't have any true meaning. There was no true worship going on. And, and so um, the church itself, uh, it, was, it was likely a church plant by Paul from Ephesus. Um, and, and you're going to hear about a guy that we'll get to even at the end, uh, Melito. 
Melito was a prominent member of this church. Uh, this was an apologist who, who wrote in defense of Christianity uh, and also served during while this church was still alive as the bishop of Sardis. Now, that wasn't until the late 2nd century. Uh, but here's what, what makes him prominent and why you want to mention him. He, w- he put out one of the earliest commentaries that we ever found on the Revelation. He actually wrote some commentary on it. Uh, and so he was, uh, he was devout. Uh, and he 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 was a big uh, defender of the faith, and he was bishop of Sardis for a while. So make a note of that. Uh, there is no mention, and this is one of the things we've talked about a lot. This letter will mention nothing about persecution. You know why? If a church is dead, there's no need to persecute it. Uh, so they're not getting any persecution because nobody's threatened by them. They're not accomplishing anything. They're not making disciples. They're not having any any impact on their community. They're, they are so insignificant that they're not even being persecuted. Uh, that, that's how fruitless the church is. Uh, it was, uh, and now let's talk about the city where it was found, where, where it was located. Uh, Sardis was founded around 1200 BC. Uh, it had been one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. At one time, it was actually the capital of the, uh, I mean, famously wealthy Lydian kingdom. It was the capital of the whole kingdom. That's how prominent it once was. You ready for this? You ready for an interesting person from Sardis? Sardis? little tidbit to take with you. Aesop. Of Aesop's fables. He, he, he lived in Sardis. So, uh, so make a note of that. Uh, their wealth there came from gold. Uh, gold was discovered there. Uh, and uh, they, they, they have hundreds and hundreds of crucibles. We had archaeologists go there and dig it up, and they said, boy, they refined a lot of gold here. Uh, they found all these crucibles where they were refining gold, so that that's where their wealth came from. Uh, and they, they also um, uh, had gold and silver, and they believed that Sardis was the first place to ever take gold and silver and mint it uh, for for uh, to be used as currency. Uh, Sardis uh, claimed to have uh, discovered also how to dye wool, so they did really well with that also and had to, had an incredible wool industry. Uh, they were on the west end of a, a royal road that led uh, to the Persian capital city of Susa. So they had a good location, and, and that worked out for them too. Uh, they were 30 miles south of Thyatira. Uh, the location, however, was, was, was perfect, but the problem that they had is it was locked. You ever have a landlocked place? You can't really expand. So that, that kind of led to some of their problems, and they were not able to expand uh, they did have a lot of natural fortification, unlike Thyatira. Uh, and but then you know what that led to? Overconfident. We don't think anybody can. You ever heard this before? These cities and and even at one time a famous cruise ship. Nobody can sink it. Nobody can defeat us. We're too fortified. Uh, and that led to their demise because they became a little careless, and they eventually were conquered. Uh, and um, and and they and they were at one time. This was a saying. Okay. This is how fortified they were. At one time, this was a saying. To capture the Acropolis of Sardis was to do the impossible. That, that's how they were so famous for not being able to be conquered. But, again, that led to overconfidence, and they eventually were conquered. Uh, Sardis, after they were conquered, never regained their independence, and they came under the Roman Empire somewhere around 133 B.C. Now, an earthquake took it out in A.D. 17, and Tiberius rebuilt it, 
uh, Sardis built a temple in his honor as a thank you to Tiberius for funding the rebuilding of Sardis. Um, they did have uh, uh, some paganism there beyond Tiberius. Uh, they worshiped the god um, uh, Sabali. Uh, it's the same goddess as the Ephesians wor- worshiped. Uh, it's just a different name for Artemis or Diana. So they, they did have that problem. They had hot springs. That was a biggie. Uh, and it wasn't very far from Sardis. You'll see that come into play with Laodicea in a big way. Uh, they That was supposed to give power to the dead, and how ironic uh, some of the commentaries say John Phillips and MacArthur made this comment as well. It was ironic for a city that was known for giving power to the dead to actually have the church that was dead. Uh, in John's day, Sardis was prosperous, but it was starting to decay. Their, their glory days had kind of come and gone. Uh, and they and and the glory days were long past. Both both the city and the church had lost their vitality. Mm. So there's there you go. That sets the scene. That's where we are. Uh, so now the letter uh, to Sardis. We're going to start uh, with uh, with what Jesus has to say as usual about himself, and it always applies to the state of this church. I, I can I can tell you that I, I've experienced this. Uh, you know, when I when I first became a follower of Christ, and and through the time of being sanctified, and and times of people discipling me, and I got to the point where I felt that God was confirming a call for me to begin to to speak, and you know, and it started off, you know, is hey, here comes the guy with the radio show. Let's see if some people can come, and then do a little warm up for everybody, and then we'll bring out the the real speaker, and and that was appropriate. That's where I should have been. But um, I remember when I started getting to, you know, to the point that I was going to speak on my own, and I'd always heard this term about dead churches, and I started experiencing it. Uh, I'd never really understood that. It, you ever had something that somebody says, what is a dead church? And you say, it's hard to explain, but you'll know it. Uh, and I can remember the first time, and let me be clear, I've seen dead churches that are small. I've seen dead, dead churches that are medium. I've seen dead churches that are large, and I've seen dead churches that were mega. It's no indication on the size of the church whether it's dead or not. Okay, it, it's whether the the power of God is in the church or not. And I remember sitting there. Uh, I'll never forget it. And I was fired up, man. I, I was one of these people that if you, I, I mean, I would. I think I might have been more annoying then than I am now, and I'm pretty annoying now. Uh, about you know, I, all I, I just couldn't wait to talk about Jesus. I mean, I was fired up. I'd been redeemed. My life was being changed, transformed, and I just, I just couldn't get enough of it. Would be so excited about getting a chance to go and speak, and I still have that enthusiasm today. But I remember the first time I walked in, and the pastor, I went in his office, and he didn't even look up at me, and I sat down across from him, and I was preaching on a Sunday morning. And he starts kind of looking down at his watch, and he's kind of piddling around on his desk, and he goes, you ready? And I was like, sir? All right, let's go. And I thought, we didn't pray. We didn't talk about Jesus. I could tell right there this guy just had an off day. That's all he had. And I walked into that congregation, and it was dead, dead. I mean, it was freezing spiritually in there. That was, I mean, it was it was like to get up and preach in that place was literally like chopping wood. I mean, you labored to talk to these people. They were they were coming there out of tradition and nothing else. All they could think about is what they were doing next, and this is something they normally do on a Sunday. 
And I thought to myself, this is this is what it feels like. This this church is dead. And and I and I've walked into churches that were on fire and alive, and you can tell when the Lord is present and when He's not. And uh, and so this I that's the first time I'd ever experienced that. I have experienced it since. Uh, thankfully, not as much as you know, but it doesn't happen much, but it does happen uh, because most of the time a dead church doesn't even fool with trying to do anything to to bring revival. You know, they they're not going to take the time to do that. They'll just keep doing what they always do. But but anyway, so when when Jesus begins to address this church, notice that, th- and we'll see this again at Laodicea. Up to this point, he's get, he's given some kind of commendation to the church before he gives them the condemnation. Not here. He has nothing good to say. Uh, he doesn't have anything that's a positive uh, to start with, and so he goes right to the condemnation. Uh, but first of all, he introduces himself and says, "Into the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Um, so the seven represents the churches. We've already talked about that. Uh, the seven spirits. Uh, that 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 is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've talked about this. This this goes back to chapter one, but this is the description he's using of himself to get this church ready for their letter, uh, and he's reminding them again that that the fullness of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord, uh, that all the fullness, the seven spirits, the uh, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is what I bring. And, and what he's saying is, so whatever I say because of who I am, I see it correctly. I have the wisdom. I have the knowledge. I know it all. And, uh, and then the next thing he talks about, you know, is, is the churches, you know, seem like a lampstand. You know, he, t- he says, I'm coming in, and, and you know, the, the seven uh, here, which is, you know, God's favorite and perfect number, uh, the seven spirits. And, and then, you know, when Jesus is standing among the lampstands back in, earlier in the Revelation, those, those lampstands represent the churches. Um, and, you know, just, just picture that lampstand representation, kind of like a menorah, kind of has that look. And, and then the seven stars that he talks about here are the messengers or the elders. Uh, this shows Jesus is sovereign Lord of the church, and he's mediating his rule through these leaders of the church. So... Jesus here does not even hint uh, at at the. I mean, he 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 doesn't he doesn't hold back on the severity of the situation at Sardis. Uh, you know, he's not doing. It's so obvious. He's not even you know showing that he's the divine judge like he has in the others. He says that that Sardis is going to face judgment, but I'm not even going to tell you about who I am in, in that part of my character because I want you to know that because of the power of the Holy Spirit and because of me being Lord over the churches, I'm just going to get right to what we got to fix. So, so uh, he, it's like he's just he's not fooling around. He's just jumping right into this, and he's showing them that devoid of his spirit, and this is important, the church at Sardis was dead. And this church, this is important, very important, because I know there's always this question. When you have a dead church, a church that has no fruit and it's dead, it usually means that over time it has become completely populated with people who may present themselves as redeemed, but they are not. Because it's impossible for redeemed people not to be transformed by Jesus. Scripture tells us that. 
So if there's no fruit flowing from the church and the church is dead, then the people are dead. So it's become populated by unredeemed people. That's why there's nothing flowing from there because he's not there. Um, and we'll get into some of that again when we get to the church at Laodicea. So then he gets into the concern, uh, the, the concern that he has. Look what he says next. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So because they're dead, that's the reason why he doesn't give them any commendation. He doesn't have anything good to say. He says, now, people may think you're alive, but I know you're not. And the fact that you're dead, I can never say anything about positive about a church that's dead. There's nothing flowing from you. And, and so there is no nothing good to say. He goes directly to the concern. He says, outwardly, you look good to men, but, but to the Lord, I know your deeds, and I judge you as dead. And look, let me tell you what we got to take away from that individually. <laughs> it means nothing how other human beings see us. If other human beings are impressed with us, it may be that we just look good compared to other people. That's not our standard. Our standard is how does Jesus see us? He said, I'm the one that's going to judge whether you're dead or alive. I don't care how people see you. You can fool people, but you can't fool me. I know your thoughts. I know your deeds. I know what you do when nobody's around. I know whether or not you're the kind of person that does things for people that can't do anything for you. Think about little things like that. I mean, he gets that. When, when you start claiming, and you and I start claiming we've been transformed by Jesus, he says, well, then i got to look at everything. And I've heard it said, I think it was Adrian Rogers who said that, if you want to know the true character of a man, Watch how he treats people that can't do anything for him. All of us, man, we just fall all over people that can help us. But how, how do we act to people that can't do anything for us? And, uh, and he says, so you may be playing a game with people, but you don't play no games with me. I judge you as dead, and guess what? Based on what I just told you about my, my resume, my judgment is correct. You, so if you want to say you're not dead, you'd have to tell me you're not dead and I don't get things wrong. And, and that's the point he's making. So what was happening to the church? It had become defiled by the world. Remember back to the uh, study we did on, in the letter to the, the church at Corinth? What did John Phillips say? The church is fine in a dead society as long as it's acting like a boat and it's pushing the world out so it floats. But when the church begins to sink, just like a boat, is when that water starts coming in. And so they had been defiled by the world. They were decaying from the inside. And back to what I already said, it had been populated by unredeemed people. And throughout, and we've said this in these Bible studies in here for years, spiritual death is always caused by sin. It, 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 you remember way back when we first started, it might have been one of the first Bible studies we did. Was Calvary Road the first one we ever did? If not, it was one of the first. Okay. And in the book uh, that, uh, that Hessians wrote, The Calvary Road, he is trying to figure out what causes revivals to end. Why do they end? And he came to the conclusion after talking to pastors who served all over the world, because remember, if you really want to know the state of the church, you're going to have to leave the United States of America. 
The church is much bigger than the United States of America. And some of the problems we have, the rest of the churches don't have. Okay, Some of the garbage we deal with, they're not dealing with it. And when he found a church that was in parts of Africa that the revival seemed to continue, he then wrote Calvary Road to say, here's how revival continues, and guess what always stops revival? Sin. Uh, unrepented sin. And, and so that always causes spiritual death. Sardis, another analogy that was used, in, um, and I can't remember which commentator used this analogy. It may have been Phillips, but it was a good one. It said Sardis was like a museum. You walk in and you see all these fake stuffed animals, and you see these fake exhibits that will make you pretend that uh, this animal's really still in Africa in the, on the Serengeti, but it's just man-made. It's not real. The animal's dead. That scene's been painted. He said that's the way the church looked. It, it was more of a museum than an active living church. Everybody appeared to be normal, but nothing is alive. Sin killed the church at Sardis. So what are some of the danger signs that we should look at uh, in our lives as, as the members of the church or in congregation with the church? Some of the danger signs that you see that a church dies, resting on your past laurels. I mean, one of the most convicting, we did our study of Acts. I go back to Philip. Remember I was talking about it then? And Philip goes, and, and it says when God told him to go to the eunuch, he ran to him. And he gets there, and he, he gets up in there with the eunuch, and he takes him through uh, you know, Isaiah, and he's telling him that, who Isaiah's talking about, and he points him to Jesus, and the, guy say, and the eunuch says, well, there's an, we're, we're, I'll be baptized. Here's some water right here. What keeps you from being baptized? Takes him over there and baptizes him, and guess what it says? And then, boom, he was gone to the next thing. You realize how many of us, Rick Burgess included, I would have told the eunuch story for how long? Well, you have, let me tell you what happened to me with this eunuch one time. And, you know, and God's going, why didn't you move on to the next thing? You're just going to sit and tell us that story? Is that, is that your spiritual legacy for the rest of your life, you and the eunuch? Philip didn't he, he I don't know that he ever told anybody. It says that Philip went right to the next thing and went into the next city and started to lead more people to Jesus. He didn't stick on the eunuch story. You ever been around those people? They, they're still telling the same stories they've been telling for 12 years. Have you? Has anything new happened in your spiritual life? You're still talking about that mission, one mission trip you went on 15 years ago? What did you do in the last 15 days? And so resting on your past laurels in churches, they, they tend to do that. Let me tell you all the things we've done. What are you doing? So that's one problem. When you have more concern over all of the traditions of the church than the spiritual reality of what they're supposed to represent. We always do this, and we always do that, and it's become so routine, and it's become so traditional. There's nothing wrong with continuing to do the things we're called to do as forms of worship until they stop being worship. Look around sometimes the next time you're in a church. Just to tell you something, when, when you go to take the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, if that's what you want to call it, when it comes time for the sacraments, look around and see how many people are looking around they're not listening. They're messing with their phone. They're thinking about what they're going to do after church. And Jesus is telling us, if you're going to do this, you do this to remember me shedding my blood for you and my body being broken for you. And don't ever forget what I did to you. And when that just becomes, oh, yeah, I guess we're going to do this next, that's dangerous. 
That's very dangerous. You're more. You, this is just something we do in the church, but it don't mean anything anymore. And I'm not suggesting your church is that way, and I'm certainly not saying my church is that way, but I'm just telling you you got to be careful of that, okay? Uh, the other thing is this. We start focusing on social ills rather than changing people's hearts. We all become, we all become social workers. Now, it, does, does, does Matthew 25 say that we should be taking care of people? Yeah. Does it say we should be visiting those that are incarcerated? Yes. Does it say we should be giving people water who don't have it, giving people food who don't have it? Yes. But why? So that we can speak to them about Jesus. Let me tell you what the church is not here for, to make somebody more comfortable while they still go to hell. And so if we become a bunch of social workers, frankly, the world can handle that. They don't do it that much as, as good as the church. They claim they do, but they don't. But that's not it. When it becomes about the social ills and churches become about some political movement now or it's, it's, uh, it, it's all about you know this and that and, and all the political problems that are going on and the social ills that are outside. And you know one thing, here's like, like for instance, you know one of the reasons maybe that a, a young woman who's in a bind, who, who has become pregnant, that didn't want to be pregnant, and yes, that's true that sin has, 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 has put her in that situation. We all got that. I don't know if any of us are going to stand up and throw a stone on that one. Okay, but you know what? Yeah, that was not God's standard. Absolutely true. And I don't understand why she's going to murder that baby. And I'm going to stand up for the babies. And I'm going to vote for the babies. What if we led her to Christ? Then maybe she wouldn't kill the baby. She needs Jesus. The guy who caused it needs Jesus. And if all we're going to do is, 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 is get on social campaigns, and hold up signs and march and all that kind of stuff. But, but at the heart of it, we're not trying to point people to Jesus. It's meaningless. And how about this? And it's not effective. And so that's what we have to be careful of. Changing people's hearts through the preaching of the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. I see this campaign that's going on now. I've seen so many of it. It's like we're scared to death of the gospel. Jesus is not a hippie. Jesus is not a social worker. Jesus is, is not your homeboy. Jesus is not your boyfriend. Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and he has come and did redeem the world. And while we're so afraid of that message, spending millions and millions of dollars to talk about social ills and, 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 and Jesus struggled just like you did and all this kind of stuff, Jesus came to redeem you. Why are we afraid of that message? Have we lost confidence in the gospel? Tell them about the gospel. And, and, and why we're afraid of that? Have we lost confidence in it? Do we not believe in it anymore? That's the good news. The good news isn't to me that, that Jesus uh, took on human flesh and, and understands what it's like to be brokenhearted. I'm glad to hear that, but that ain't going to save me. Can he relate to me? Great. So why do I need to care about him? I got, I got all kinds of buddies that relate to me. They've been through stuff tough too. They, okay, none of them redeem me, but they've been through stuff. They can relate to me. They get me. Did he save me? That's what I want to hear. Why should I care about Jesus? Because he came and he solved your biggest problem. 
He redeemed you. Oh, I can be redeemed? Yes. I can have a new beginning? Yes. I don't need any more buddies. I got them. They've never been able to save me. I didn't want to get into that today. I'm sorry that I did. But anyway, but it's in the list, okay? And also being, being more concerned with what people think than what God said. Well, I don't want to come across this. Now, let me tell you this. I've said this so many times in here, and it really, really changed my life, and I've had to deal with it with people that I love and love dearly. I'm not against you. And if you're against me because I'm devoted to him, it'll just have to be that way. Well, I don't like you. Why? Because of your devotion to Jesus? There's nothing I can do about that. I'm going to be devoted to him. I'm not against you, but I'm for him. And if you're against him, then I am against you. Just a guy called the show the other day, and it was a legitimate question, 100%. What he said, I've thought about, friends of mine have talked about, family have talked about. He said, I just can't understand how if I'm looking, he was talking about the revelation. I said, it's interesting you brought this up. We're studying it right now. He said, when I see this part where there's going to be no more sadness, there's going to be no more, uh, he's going to wipe away every tear. If I have people that I love that, that were not redeemed and, the, and they've just been cast in hell to hell because of their rejection of the God that redeemed me because I didn't reject him, how am I ever going to be okay with that in heaven? Great, it's a great question, legitimate question. But here's what he's missing. And I remember the first time my wife and I discussed this, and, of course, she being such a powerful woman of God and, and, and so powerful in the Spirit of God, she said, I'll tell you, husband, why that is. And she's 100% right. She said, when we are standing in perfection with him. You know, even in the book that she wrote, she goes, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking our reward in heaven was Bronner. It's our son that died. That's our reward in heaven. That's not our reward in heaven. Our reward in heaven is Jesus. Okay? Love my son. Can't wait to see him again. But that's not it. Okay? It's Jesus. And she said, we will become, and we're going to get to this in this study, so engrossed in him. We will be so like him. He will manifest himself to us in perfection, and that sinful, flawed flesh will be dead. And we will be in a glorified body with the glorified Christ, and we will see him in his fullness, and we will oppose anyone who opposes him. That's why it won't bother us anymore. Because anybody that opposes him, we oppose. No matter who they are. Because he is it. And when the church loses this, it begins to die. Also, we cannot become more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than with the Word of God. You wouldn't believe how many people have told me, I would be a full Christian if I would just get this doctrine right that they're obsessed with. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land on the Word of God, and I'm going to do exactly what it says, and I'm going to read it just as it is, and the power of the Holy Spirit has transformed my life, and if I've got some little something that you cling to and worship more than you worship the Word of God, you're just going to have to deal with it. Rick, we want you to give us your label. I'm a devout follower of Jesus, period. We don't, we, I don't even see that on the list. What denomination is that? 
These denominations don't mean anything to me. I'd walk out of the church I'm in right now and go to another one, no matter what it was called, if I went there and found sound followers of Jesus that immerse themselves in the Word of God. And what's, what I love is we obsess over what some human beings thought about it, and we start worshiping them and their flawed grasp of God as opposed to just what God says about himself. Look, you, you may love some theology some man came up with, but don't let that be what you worship. And it may even be accurate, but don't worship. I think some of these great men of, 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 our, of the church, they would be appalled that we're tying their last names to, to denominations. I think they're like, don't tie my name to that. I may have got it right, but you make that about Jesus. Please get my name out of this. Before you know it, you're enamored with this guy. You're not enamored with Jesus anymore. And that's always a problem. And this is all being addressed. When you lose your conviction about the Word of God and something else becomes more important to you, how about every word of the Bible is the Word of God himself, and if you don't like that, you'll have to take that up with God. But that's what we're called to live. And what does Jesus say this church needs to do? Look at the very next thing he says in verse 2. Wake up. Wake up. Oh, if the church would wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up, church, he says. You are going through the motions. Your works look good to men, but they are not the standard. I find them unacceptable in my sight. Wake up. You you once were alive, but now you're walking in your sleep. Think about what the words he's using that mean in English, wake up. What does that mean? You're asleep. You ever seen a sleepwalker before? Wake up. You ever had anybody wake you up out of your sleep? Wake up. It's surprising how alert you can be when you think that there's, there's some, there's some, if the sound sounds like this is something important. I can go from being asleep and awake just like that. Wake up. And he's saying, you need to wake up because this church is dying. You may, you may go out to, to people and they think you're great, but I got news for you as far as the Father the Holy Spirit in me, it does not meet our standard, and it is God's standard is the only standard that, re- that, that matters. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Can I say this? You don't want that. We don't need... People who claim Jesus and churches, you don't want Jesus against you. That would be the opposite of what you're hoping to be as a church. You don't want Jesus against you. But once again, here he is being gracious. He said, this is not the time to be indifferent. This is not the time. Think about this. Jesus saying, this is not the time to say, this is the way we've always done it. This is what we're comfortable with, and we don't like change. Jesus saying, oh, it's time to change. I'm telling you to change. And if Jesus tells us to change, we need to change. 
because he sees the perfection of our error, we may not. Have you ever noticed that? You ever tried to hold somebody accountable and you're trying to point to a blind spot and they keep saying they don't see it? That's why it's called a blind spot. If you could see it, you wouldn't need me. That's why you, by the way, let me let every one of you know this, Rick Burgess included. You're all delusional. It's just to what level you're delusional. But we're all delusional. You are not what you think you are. I am not what I think I am. I am at some level of being disillusioned about who I really am. But guess who's not delusional about us? Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You ever had the Holy Spirit convict you of something and you don't even know why you're being convicted because you thought it was just fine? That's why you better not be the standard, and I better not be the standard because I'm flawed. And I'm always going to see myself a little better than I really am. That's why you got to have friends that will tell you the truth. i got them who are brutal. I wish they would at least coddle me a little bit sometimes. But here's what he says. Go back to what you know. Now, what is he talking about? The teaching of the apostles. Go back and remember what those I sent you taught you. Do you know what he'd say? we'd say today? Go back to the Scriptures. Go back to the Holy Inspired Word. See if what y'all are doing matches up. And what does he say? There's an ember there. There's a little bit left of what I taught you. Somebody needs to flame it. Would you and I be willing in our church to be the one that goes back to the embers and says, hey, we got to get this back on fire. We got we got to stop this. We got to change that. And then you can biblically say, this is wrong. Are you one of those kind of people who go, yeah, this bothers me, but I just don't want to make trouble? Now, you don't want to be somebody who, you know, becomes this annoying person that uh, has a critical spirit. That's not what we're talking about. But you need to have a spirit that yearns for things to be right. I, 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 look, I've, I've stood up before in churches I've been part of and said, this right here is wrong. That, that, this right here has got to be changed. And as long as you can support that biblically, I mean, you got to do it. Now, it may not happen, and if it doesn't happen, you may have to go. Or maybe everybody says, yeah, this, that it was good that this was pointed out. We, we need to look at this. We, we need to change. He says before it's too late. So this is once again, I actually got ostracized one time for using, of all things, the word remnant in the men's ministry. You really got to stop using the word remnant. It makes people feel bad. But, but it's in the Bible. I, I, I didn't come up with remnant. Uh, well, you know, when you talk about the men that are coming to the church and you're, you know, we're just going to disciple the ones that will come, and you're saying, look, as long as you know, I'm, we're, we're here to disciple the remnant, the ones who want to be discipled. When you say that, it makes people that aren't participating feel bad. Well, good. <laughs> I, I, I hope it does. But, but, I mean, you know what I see right here? I see Jesus Christ. Anybody got a problem with him? Always using the term remnant. What is he saying? There's some of y'all still in there. Y'all know better. Y'all got it's always a remnant. I mean, I hated to tell this this young staff member, I said, You're you're not gonna like Matthew 7 at all. When Jesus says that the people who enter the narrow gate and go on that hard road being devout to him are always few, and actually the road is wide and easy, and many are on it. Guys, I got in every church everywhere, it's always a remnant. There aren't that many people that are willing to be devout followers of Jesus. I didn't say that. Jesus did. I found it to be true. Think about how many devout followers of Jesus do you really know? I bet it's not a lot. You you probably know a lot of cultural Christians, but I'm talking about somebody that you said, I'll tell you one thing, this man or woman right here, 
solid, devout in their faith. It's not many. It never has been, apparently. Did you ever notice every time that Jesus started developing a big following, he would always make the teaching harder and hundreds of them would leave? He was preparing them for what what it was really going to be like. You know, P.T. Barnum drew a lot of crowds, but it was just a circus. Now, does that mean just if there's a crowd, it's always bad? Doesn't mean that. I'm just saying that that's no indication that it's good. You got to vet it out. And so he says, if they do not return to the teachings of the apostles and keep them and repent that they're wrong, if not, it will be severe. Jesus uses the analogy from Matthew 24, 23, when he's talking about his return. Luke also records this in Luke 12. I can't read my writing, but I think that says 39. Luke 12, 39. Also, Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. Uh, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3, 10. Uh, we'll get to it in Revelation 16. This is all Jesus talking about when it's time. When he comes to get the church, when he's returning, he uses the analogy, you're not going to be looking for it. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You know, that's that's why we obsess on trying to – look, people obsess over, what do you think, what do you think this means? Because you really, if we were all truthful deep down in the fallen part of our lives, not our spirit, but in the fallen part, the truth is you're trying to get some idea when this is going to happen so you can get your act together right before he comes. You're going to see how much longer you can stay serving that flesh, but you're going to turn it around if you can figure out when he's coming. Or you can figure out when you're going to die. And you know, he says, that's never going to happen. You're going to die when you don't expect it. I'm going to return when you don't expect it. And if y'all don't repent, I'm going to come into that church like a thief in the night, and I'm going to turn this place upside down. I'm going to kill this church. And you're never going to see it coming. We've seen that before, haven't we? If He said if there's no revival and there's no repentance, this church will be destroyed. You knew the truth and you left the truth. I want you all to turn to a very, very difficult group of verses, the writer of Hebrews. And verse 10, you knew the truth and you left it. Now, that's key. Everybody hang on to that. If you're writing down, write down you knew the truth and you left it. Not that you didn't know. You knew it. Y'all had been taught by the apostles. Y'all know better than this. Look what the writer of Hebrews says about this situation in Hebrews 10, 29 and 30. I, I think these are some of the most convicting verses in the Bible. Look at 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then on into 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Look at, look at 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Woe to those of you that heard it and spurned it. Woe to you 
that started claiming that you fully understood, you heard loud and clear, you knew the truth, and then you spurned me. For you is coming judgment. Jesus in Matthew 11, woe to the cities, woe to Capernaum, woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida. If the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, Gomorrah, Tyre, Sidon, they would have remained to this day because they would have repented in ashes and dust. How much worse will it be on you on the day of judgment than for Sodom? Wow. Because you know what he says? I couldn't have showed you any more who I was and you rejected me. If I'd have done that in Sodom, they would have repented. And if I'd done that in Sidon, they would have repented. If I'd have done that at Tyre, they would have repented. I, I did 90% of my miracles in these three cities and y'all rejected me. And it's going to be worse on you on the day of judgment than for them because you should have known better. That's Jesus. That's not Rick. That's Jesus. So now he gives them the counsel on what they needed to do. Here it is again, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. Do we not see this over and over again? You know what Jesus is saying, don't you? Those of you that won't be part of this garbage, I'm going to save y'all. That's the conqueror. That's the overcomer. You didn't turn on me. You didn't spurn me. You didn't go off into a lifestyle of deliberate, perpetual sin after receiving the truth. Those of you that didn't do that, Listen what he says. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. You don't want that. You don't want to be on the other end of that. He said, you're an overcomer. You stuck with me. You didn't abandon me. I'm not saying you're perfect, but you didn't justify sin in your life. You repented when you were wrong. You felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit because you're with me. And for those of you that did not justify the sin in your life, that did not turn from me, that, that persevered through either persecution or just the apathy of a dead church, for you, I'm going to clothe you in white garments and you're going to stay in the book of life. I got your name written down and it won't ever be blotted out. Amen. So then he goes on. I will confess his name before my father. And before his angels. I love that. That, come, that comes right out of the scriptures. Uh, now, the, the ancient garments, I'll give you some of this, the white garments, ancient world. There was a couple of things that he's using as an analogy here. One of them is this was in the ancient world when there was a celebration, like a wedding, everybody wore white. A wedding. The revelation, we're going to get to that. The true and devout will wear them at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be clothed in white if you're an overcomer. We're invited there. We're, we're, we're there. We're guests. We're on the list. You'll find that later in Revelation 19. We'll get to that. Also, they wore that to celebrate victories in battle. When they had a victory, everybody put on the white garments. We won. Guess what victory we're celebrating? Jesus has defeated the adversary. Jesus has defeated evil. He wins. We're with him. We're in the white. We overcame. Because of him, because we were devoted to him and he transformed us and he defeated our sin, he defeated death, and he's finally, for the final time, ran Satan out. And only his church remains. And we're dressed in white. We're celebrating. And it's victory. 
It also represents purity and holiness. He makes you fully righteous. He makes us fully holy when we couldn't be any other way. Our holiness is found in his perfection. He makes us righteous and says, you're co-heirs with me. You've been adopted as my brothers and sisters. And I will escort you to our father. But that's to the overcomer. That's not to the dead folks in the church who heard the truth and became apathetic about it. Christ will affirm before his Father all who are truly his. Turn with me real quick. We're running out of time, but I'm going to get there. Matthew 10, 32. Some of you already saw this coming. You've heard these words before, haven't you? Matthew 10, 32. This, this is, again, some of these verses that we overlook, but they're really big. How many times you have people say, well, you know, I, I just have my faith, and I just kind of keep it to myself. It's a private thing. Don't want to offend anybody. I, 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 my, my faith, I don't need a church. I don't need to tell people. I, I just live my life. I don't have to say anything publicly about Jesus. You know what some of these arrogant people are saying? I'm so wonderful that when people just see me in the grocery store, they start repenting <laughs> and say, I, I just see Jesus in you right now. You're so incredible. Now, are we supposed to be doers of the word, not just here? Yeah. Are we supposed to have fruit flowing from, flowing, flowing from our life? Yes. But we are supposed to publicly acknowledge him, and we are to, to teach and preach and witness. Why? Because Jesus said to. What a concept. Look what he says in 32 of Matthew 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You know what? why these two verses are extremely important? That's why the Coptic Christians, we, we just celebrated their anniversary, when they lined them up on the beach, when people kept saying, go ahead and denounce Jesus in his heart. He knows you really didn't. Because of this verse, he says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. That's why they said, cut our heads off. We won't deny him. And you know what their family said? If you want to see devout followers of Jesus under incredible persecution, we are so thankful that God found our loved one worthy of getting his head cut off. Because that witness will go out to the world. And you know what they got next? Jesus. You think they were clinging to going back to the garbage they lived in? Cut our heads off. You'll just send us to Jesus. And you know what people out there were thinking? Wow. That's conviction. And they proclaimed him to the world. And let me tell you this. He acknowledged them before the Father because he said he would. And then at the end, he says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He ends it again with a call to heed the warning. Did Asardis ever have a revival? There's an indication maybe. Because what I told you earlier, Melito, the apologetic, he became the bishop of Sardis. That was second century. So just the fact that he's in the records at least gives some indication that some type of revival may have broke out in Sardis. Maybe. But the bottom line is the message is this. 
Now is the time for the dead church to come alive. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this message. May we feel the conviction and the refinement of it. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us.